0: Amen. What a fitting, fitting song for what we will soon be looking at. You may be seated. How do you know what to do next? How do you make your decisions? You have that really tough choice, which college to go to, which job to take, who to marry, what to have for breakfast. That can be hard. How do you make your decisions? How do you make your choices? Well, that's easy. I mean, you kill a lamb, then you take out its liver, you look at the liver based upon however it looks when you take it out. I have no idea what a lamb's liver looks like. Then you can compare it to other livers, and in a process, you can determine what is the will of the gods. Or, if that's not your thing... You could, uh, you know, make some tea with all the tea leaves still in there and then drink it all the way down. And whatever pattern is left on the bottom of the cup, you can determine what your fate is, what you should do next. Or, if that's not your cup of tea, then you could know your astrological pattern and you can go and talk to somebody who would tell you what the future holds for you based on astrology. Now, what's interesting about each of these bizarre ways that we try to determine how to make a decision is that underneath them all is the the idea that there is a course that is plotted out in history, and there's a right way and there's a wrong way. Now, many people conceive of this as being impersonal, right? Just the universe is directing you in some way. I've never really understood how you could believe that. But it does point to something that's true and that's that we recognize that God as our Creator, as our Sovereign Lord is directing the flow of history. We as Christians are not immune from bizarre methods of discerning God's will. Take, for instance, the the man whose car broke down in front of the Filipino embassy and he took that as a sign that God wanted him to be a missionary to the Philippines. I mean, naturally. Or you have the method where you empty your mind And then you pray and whatever you think of first, which for me is almost always food. I don't know why. That's the will of God for you. Or, you know, my favorite is the uh, flip to the random Bible and put your finger on it method. One one humorous story goes like this. Uh, a, A cautionary tale against playing this kind of Bible roulette is the man whose first finger pointing hit Judas went and hanged himself matthew twenty seven five he, whoa i don 't know if that 's god 's will for me, so he he flipped again and then he, he, he came to luke ten twenty seven said "Go and do likewise. oh my goodness this is and so he flipped again, and then it says, "The third one is, what are you what you are to do? go and do quickly john thirteen twenty seven so the method of the random Bible roulette flipping to a Random passage is not the method. How, how then can we discern God's will? And a better question is, should we? Should we be discerning God's will? In what sense are we talking about God's will? As we return this morning to our series in 1 Samuel, we're going to see that the narrator is developing a characteristic in David that he only surfaced earlier. In chapter 21, they gave us three short vignettes of the life of David. Little, little snippets of things. Where one, where he's with Ahimelech at, at, at Nob. And then he flees to the Philistine king in Gath, Achish. And then from there he goes to the cave of Adjulam and he gathers a group of people. And in those three snapshots, the narrator is developing character traits in David that he will flesh out later on. One of those character traits, which he surfaced in chapter 22, verses 1 through 6, is David relying upon the Lord. Remember, in his desperate attempt to flee from Saul, he made some really poor choices. He goes to Ahimelech, which ends up occasioning the death of all the priests at Nob, because Doag was there. But in his desperation, that doesn't end. He, he flees to the Israel's enemy. The Philistines in Gath. Remember, he has to act like a crazy man just to get out of that situation. But then he begins to realize, I'm doing this on my own strength, and I need to stop. And he begins to listen to the voice of the prophet, the prophet uh, Gad. And so this morning, we're going to look at chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, the first 14 verses. And there, the narrator is drawing our attention to the fact that David now has learned Not to rely on himself, but to rely on God. He he will not make a single move without asking the Lord what God desires of him. So let's let's get into this text this morning, beginning at verse 1. Now they told David, "'Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, "'Shall I go and attack these Philistines?' And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines And brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. And now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars." And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. And then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men who were about six hundred arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he came up, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your provision. We're so grateful that you have condescended to covenant with us to redeem us and restore us to fellowship with you. Father, teach us the ways that we may inquire and discern your will. Help us to understand so that we may respond like David in reliance upon you, trusting and listening to your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. Now, one of the things I want to draw your attention to is the, the, these events are happening simultaneously with the events of chapter 22. So that when Doeg is going to Ahimelech at Nob and persecuting the priests there, at that same time, David is freeing Keilah from the Philistine raiders. So the events are simultaneous. If you look at verse 6, it says, When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, David is in the city when Abiathar, who has just escaped by the edge of the sword, And fled to David. So we know that either during the time that Doeg is at Nob or sometime in that time frame, David is delivering Keilah from the Philistine raiders. Now, these raiders would come out in big parties and they they would rob the threshing floor. The threshing floor is where they would thresh out their grain. This is their sustenance. And it says they're taking this from the city. This is a city within Judah within the tribe of Judah, and of course David is a Judite; he's from Judah, and he hears news of this. And so he inquires of the Lord, shall we go down? Now you can, you can appreciate the skepticism of his men. I mean, think about, these men are outlaws, they're fugitives. They have no home, they're being persecuted by the king of Israel. They don't know who to trust. Right? They don't know where to turn, where to go, and they're thinking, we're going to go and act like an army and now deliver these people? Who's going to deliver us? Right, and So we can understand their skepticism, but David inquires again and again. The Lord responds and says, yes, go up, deliver them. And then the narrator interjects in verse 6 and tells us that Abimelech came. Well, Why does he tell us that? Well it's gonna become very important for us as we try to understand what's happening with David, but the narrator makes emphasis from Saul and he brought now I'm gonna explain a little bit more about what the ephod is, but it's an important um has twelve stones, as two stones discern the will of God. They're called the Urim and the Thummim. These are two stones that we'll talk a little bit more about in a moment. But the narrator wants us to know David has access to a priest who can inquire of the Lord. That's important for what's happening in this story. So Saul hears. David is holed up in this city with walls. He thinks, that's it. This is a good omen. I've got him. Now he's stuck and beware, because tyrants often think that their tyranny is sanctioned and blessed by God, fueling their prideful vendettas. He thinks that God is doing this, but God is not. God is doing this, but he's doing this not for Saul's benefit, but for David's. And so he sets out, um, you know, he gathers a band of, you know, five or six guys. They're only just going to take David out. No, he gathers the whole army of Israel to come and persecute the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Amorites, one of the 50 other enemies that Israel has. No, Israel's own, a person from Judah, the rightful heir to the throne, the king that God has selected, that's who Saul chooses to go out against and gather the whole army. Now, it's, not, it's a costly endeavor to gather the army, right? I mean, this is a lot of tax money, right? Goes into gathering the army. So he summons them, and they're going to go down. They're going to besiege this city. He thinks, I'm going to tear down these walls, and I've finally got this guy. Well, somehow David hears that Saul's coming, and he inquires of the Lord. He wants to know, you know, is he coming? And if he comes... Are the people of this city, are they just going to give me up, right? You can imagine, David's probably somewhat of a hero to these guys. He just delivered them from the Philistines. Saul hasn't done that. David might, might think, well, maybe I'm safe here. Maybe I can rely on these people. But, but God says, no, you can't. You need to flee. And so he does. He leaves. He goes to a different portion, the hill country, in the wilderness of Ziph, which will be important for next week. Which is still in the territory of Judah. But what the narrator is drawing our attention to is how many times David inquired of the Lord and listened for his response. When the text says, David inquired of the Lord, what does that mean? What does that mean exactly? Sometimes we have, we, we have these mental images, right? We think about the prophets. How, how did they hear God? We pray, and I've never heard an audible voice from God. I've had God prompt my spirit, and I've been led into places in His Word, but I've never heard an audible voice from God. How does God reveal Himself to His people? Is David just hearing an audible voice from God? I'm sure that many of you have read... Lots of stories in the Old Testament and, and thought, how did they hear? How, how, did they, how is God responding to them? The theological question underneath this is, how does God reveal himself to his people? And we know theologians distinguish between two types of revelation. We have general revelation, what is found in God's creation, and special revelation, what is found in his word. General revelation is enough to render us without excuse, as Romans 1 tells us. That we know that there is a God just from looking at the creation. So we should, as all creatures should, give honor and thanks to our creator. Now, the general revelation is not enough to lead us to salvation. Because we need the special revelation that comes from God's word as he reveals himself to us. Special revelation is God's unfolding revelation of himself in two things. Word and action. The word is the way that God speaks about himself. The infinite chasm that exists between who God is and who we are, we cannot know anything about God unless he tells us about himself. And he tells us about himself by describing who he is. He passes before Moses and he says, The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We learn something about who God is. He is our Lord. But He's also gracious and compassionate. He's also slow to anger. He shows us His chesed, His steadfast love. right? His covenant-keeping love that if He makes a promise and He binds Himself to an oath, it will be fulfilled. Because His Word is true. So God has revealed Himself in His words, but also in His acts, what He has done. We would differentiate between his creation and his providence. God has created the world. We relate to God as our creator. But he also sustains us. He delivers us, right? He he takes us out of the slave market of sin in Egypt and delivers us in an exodus just like he did to Israel. That's one of his acts, how he has acted. We learn something of who God is. He loves us. He's the one that bore Israel on eagles' wings. He carried them in the wilderness. Right? We l- we're learning about who God is through what He has said about Himself and what He has done in history. And it progressively unfolds over time so that from the beginning we're learning more to the end we're learning more about who God is and what He has done. And in Hebrews we have this statement of this in chapter verse 1 and 2, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. And as Christians, we've always had the question of, well, how how do I relate the way that God worked in the Old Testament with how he works today? Should I be inquiring of the Lord in the same way that David was? David has at his disposal prophetic guidance through the prophet Gad and other prophets who will show up because they're always very close to the king. That the Lord wants to direct the way that the king goes, so he has prophetic guidance. Do we have that? Should I rely on the same methods that David used? That's the question that we're trying to ask as we understand what it means that David inquired of the Lord. Westminster, larger catechism, 33 through 35, is very important here. And I'm not going to read the whole of those three questions, but I would encourage you to go and look at them. One of the things it asks is, how is the covenant of grace administered differently in the old covenant versus in the new? And the answer to that question is it is administered differently. It's not the same. One, you might think of it as a circle. One is looking forward to the Messiah, and one is looking back we are looking back at what the Messiah has done. They were looking forward to a Messiah coming. There is continuity between them two, but they are not the same. God has spoken to us in his prophets, but in these latter days, he has spoken to us in his Son. And so, for us, as New Covenant believers, God has spoken to us definitively, perfectly, and and through His Son, Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, it was through types and shadows and ordinances. God gave them the covenants. He gave them circumcision. He gave them the Passover. He gave them prophets. And He spoke to them in that way. All looking forward to the Christ who would come. Sometimes He spoke to them directly like Moses, who did hear an audible voice, who did speak to God face to face. Sometimes it was through dreams and visions. Sometimes it was the Urim and Thumim. Those two stones were probably square, maybe, you know, so big, probably black and white, black on one side and white on the other. And there were two of them. And they would be cast to get a yes or no answer. The, The idea behind this is that God directs the fall of the lots, right, or the, the way the dice roll, that kind of idea. So if you got two whites, then it was a yes from God. If you got two blacks, then it was a no from God. If you got a white and a black, then it was, God's not responding. You don't have a response. Saul comes into this, right? Saul gets a hold of the Urim and Thummim, and he casts it, and he gets no response from God. This is in chapter 28, and what does he do? He he resorts to necromancy. He calls up Samuel from the dead to learn the will of God. Well, I mean, that would be great. I would love to have the Urim and Thummim. You know, just let's... Where are we going to dinner today? You know, obviously it wouldn't be that trivial, but prophet, we do have, like David, a priest. We do have, like David, a king. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's a better prophet because we don't have to weigh his message with other prophets. Think of all the times when Israel is confronted with false prophets who say, yeah, go for it. You're going to do great. And then you get that one guy, Micaiah. I don't know if you remember that story. You, know, you get these, All these prophets come and they say, yeah, you're going to kill the king of Israel. I can't remember if it was Assyria or Babylon, but you're, you're going to destroy him, and then is there any other prophets left in the land? Yeah, but there's this one guy, but he always tells me what I don't want to hear. And then they get the one guy coming in. But Jesus is not like that. The message that he speaks is truthful. There's no falsity in it. Jesus is a greater priest. Not least because He represents us before the Father as our high priest interceding for us. I mean, have you ever just stopped to think about that? Have you ever just stopped to think that Jesus is praying for you? Jesus is praying for you. But even greater than that, this priest Offered up Himself. Other priests were sinful. They had to offer up sacrifices for their own sins. Jesus gave His whole life for you. And He bids you come to inquire of Him. This is why Jesus taught His disciples in John 16.23. Truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He will give it to you. We have God's ear because we come to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, ending our prayers in Jesus' name is not some cute evangelical Christianese. In Jesus' name. It's powerful. You are coming to the Father in the Son. And He hears you because He has the ear of His Father. And he says, whatever you ask in my name, it is yours. Prayer is the voice of faith. Faith can't help but cry out, Jesus, I don't know where to go next. I don't know what to do next. Direct my steps. And we can come to the Father in the name of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Larger Catechism 178 says, What is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of His Spirit with confession of sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. It's an offering up of our desires. It's an inquiring of the Lord. Yeah, we don't have the same methods that David had. Because David was looking forward to Jesus. But we have the substance! We have Jesus! David said, Lord, what do I do? How do I proceed? What direction should I take? In doing this, he shows us the path of wisdom, which is a daily reliance on God to direct the course of our lives according to His will and for His glory. And then waiting for his response. And this is the hard part, isn't it? I mean, this is the really... Okay, I get that. I get prayer. I get that I can come to the Father at any time. In the name of the Son, I can, I, I can ask Him anything. I get that. How do I get the answer? Where do I get... That's the thing that I want to know. If David received direction according to God's will... To the questions he asked, through the various means God gave him, can we expect the same thing, and with the same specificity? To the answer to that, I want to take a brief detour, and I want to ask, is discerning God's will even a good question? And what do we mean by God's will? What does that mean? To discern or not to discern? That's the question. What do we mean when we ask, what is God's plan? Usually we mean a specific answer to a perplexing decision, you know, vocation, job, whatever, spouse, college, all those kinds of things. We want to know, okay, I've got several paths, I need a specific answer. But the Scriptures speak about the will of God in two different ways. One, we might call His decretive will. I know I'm going to use a couple big theological terms, but they're important for us to understand because we, we need to have our frame of reference, the way we speak about discerning God's will, shaped by the Scriptures, not by our own notions. Paul says in Ephesians 1.5, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Okay, so we're, we're using the word will of God in a particular way there. And that's talking about his unfolding plan. He has a plan for how the world begins and how it ends. Right? That we call his purposes. That's his sovereign will to bring about the ends from the beginning. He's already determined the outcome. right? This is why faith, we can have faith. This is why we can trust in Jesus because guess what? He wins. We already know the end. And we can trust that God's purposes and plans are being worked out in time and history and that also includes the contingent will of man. Our own wills. Our own lives. All of that is included in God's purpose and plan. Even our sinful actions. Right, Luke says in Acts chapter 2.23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The crucifixion was not an accident. God wasn't like, oh shoot, I don't know what to do now. I sent my son to be a savior, now he's dead. No, it was planned from the beginning. It was a definite plan. But God used sinful men to bring it about. And this decretive will, God's purposes and plans, His sovereign plans, we are warned against prying into. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So, there are things that God has not revealed, such as your future. He has not told you all that's going to take place in your life. He has revealed some things about the future, but not everything. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back. We don't know when God will finally put all of his, un- his enemies under Jesus' feet, but we know that he will. He's revealed enough for us to rely upon, to have trust and faith and deep confidence because God is at work in us so that all of his good purposes come to a great end, his glory. And that includes our suffering, that includes our sin, that includes our loss, our sickness, the heartaches. All of it is included in God's perfect sovereign plan. So, what has God revealed? What is his will for you? Paul sums it up best in Romans chapter 12 verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good, acceptable, and perfect. Well, there it is. That's the will of God. Whatever is good, acceptable, and perfect is the will of God. We call this God's prescriptive will. This is what he has revealed. This is how you are to live before him. This is what kind of person God requires of you to be. He's not concerned about what you should do. How you should be. How you should live in the world. What kind of character you are to have. You are to be a, a person who has not conformed to the world, but is transformed the renewing of your mind so that you can discern the will of God. So can you discern the will of God? Well, yes, of course. You can know you should be in any situation. What kind of person you should be. Good and acceptable and perfect. Scripture uses the language of desires, wishes, wants. How does God, what are God's desires? That's God's prescriptive will. And it's not a mystery. God has revealed it. He's very clearly outlined in Scripture how you are to be. even gave you a model. The Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, follow me. I'm going this way. Go this way with me. And become the kind of person. It doesn't look like anything in this world. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are the poor in hearts. It doesn't look like anything that this world has on offer. So if you want to discern the will of God, look to Jesus. He's the one that we're following hard after. He's the one that our life should be conformed to, and when we look to him, then the difficult decisions that we have are not as difficult because we know I know how to be in this situation, and that will inform how what we do, how we respond. Part of the problem and what's behind the this desire for divination that we all, you know, find a tendency towards. And we, we want to be certain. We want certainty. But God has called us to faith. Faith is certain, but it's not the certainty of seeing. It's the certainty of hope. It's the one that looks, doesn't see a Jesus in front of him, and yet still follows him. It's a trust that rests in Jesus' finished work. And prayer is the expression of that attitude. And we inquire of the Lord, and then we do. The, the, the church used to say, Lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of praying is the law of believing. Prayer is faith seeking understanding. This is why prayer and the word go together as handmaidens. We don't have quick fix solutions of divination, but behind those assumptions are bad theology. For there is no decision that will make that is somehow outside of God's will. For even your sinful actions, your mistakes, and your big time blunders, all of those are a part of the will of God for your salvation. Have you thought about that? I mean, we, we, we want our kids to go through life with no, no suffering, no pain, no hardship, no mistakes. But I would not be standing here if I wasn't a desperate sinner who had made some horrific mistakes. I would not be the kind of person that God was molding and shaping to lead others to Christ if I had not gone there myself. You don't need to agonize over whether you choose the right spouse. You did! Or the right job or the right house because whatever situation you find yourself in, the will of God for you is your conformity to Christ. And as that happens, as you're shaped to be more and more like Christ, you are being conformed to be the kind of person who responds according to God's will. That's what it means to be a man after God's own heart. It's not that David makes all the right decisions. It's that he's listening. That means he hears what God says and he responds. David learned that lesson. That's what we see. Are you Are you learning to listen, to hear God and respond in obedience? Are you learning to have your desires and wants shaped by the Word of God so that you respond out of that because you're so conformed to Christ, you act like Him? Then you don't have to worry about discerning God's will because God has given us His ordinary means of grace, word and prayer all we need to discern God's will. And just lean in to faith seeking understanding through prayer and through the word, through how God has revealed himself to you. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we have your ear that we can offer up our prayer, our desires our hopes our aspirations and they're not too small or petty for you you hear them all you respond and you've given us your son jesus as a as a token as a a a reminder that we have we can come to you and inquire of you and discern your will and so conform us to be like christ so that out of who we are we do make the kind of decisions that glorify you. For we pray this in Jesus' name.